Hi, everyone. The Curious Task will soon have an exciting opportunity to share a special episode with lots of new listeners. As part of that, in one of the coming weeks, we'll be airing two episodes, so keep an eye out for that. This week, we're re-airing one of our favorite episodes from the past year that we think is especially relevant now. Please enjoy this re-airing of Is a Better World Possible? with Pete Betke. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Pete Betke. Pete is the Vice President and Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Centre, as well as the BBNT Professor for the Study of Capitalism and University Professor of Economics and Philosophy at George Mason University. He specializes in Austrian economics, economic history, institutional analysis, public choice, and social change. Pete has authored and co-authored many books and is the editor of the Review of Austrian Economics, series editor of the New Thinking in Political Economy book series, and co-editor of the Cambridge Studies in Economics, Choice and Society. He was previously a guest on The Curious Task in a really great episode you should listen to on the question, what is The Curious Task of Economics? His most recent book, The Struggle for a Better World, will inform our conversation today. Pete, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. I'm thrilled to be here uh, to uh, have this conversation. In each of our episodes, as you know, we base it on a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, is a better world possible? And as I noted in the intro, this is based on your book, The Struggle for a Better World. There's so much in there and so much on this topic, obviously, hence you, you wrote the book and the collection of essays and talks. And we encourage everyone to check out this book for themselves. That is, it is quite new. I think the best thing for us today, with especially with you know relatively limited time we have, is to chat about some of the key threads that I pulled from the book and why the struggle is so important and the you know the liberals' role in it and so on and so forth. So I wanted to kick us off with some some great words of yours that I found right in the intro. And and here's the quote. So I'm going to read it out here. You say, as an advocate of liberal cosmopolitanism. I recognize that there is a historical struggle for the fulfillment of that program, a program grounded in the basic recognition that we are one another's dignified equals. That is ongoing and unending. So there's actually a lot packed in there. So the idea that this is ongoing and unending, you know, that that the struggle is not over, basic recognition of individuals. Why don't, why don't you jump off from there for us? Just because that really, to me, sets the whole tone for, for the book and what we're going to discuss today, too, even. Yeah, so... Alex, you asked me first whether or not a better world is possible. And I, you know, at some level, I mean, the, the, there's twin meanings of the term struggle in the book, right? The one meaning has to do with me as a scholar trying to st- struggle to understand what I see out the window as an as a intellectual theorist, whatever, you know. And the other one is on the basis of that knowledge, how would we improve the world that we see out the window? And I'm influenced in this by my professor, Jim Buchanan. So I had two major professors at George Mason. I had several amazing professors at George Mason, actually, and I talk about them in my book, Living Economics, uh, to to a a serious extent. And Don Lavoie, of course, was my, my main inspiration as a uh, student, but I also sat at the feet of of Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and Ken Boulding in particular, as and tried to learn as much as I could from them. And Buchanan used to 
you have this, uh, you know, curious little phrase, which he took from Frank Knight, which is to say a situation is hopeless is to say it's ideal. So and then what he would say is obviously the world isn't ideal. So it must not be hopeless. <laughs> right. And so to me, especially as I started my career and I began moving away from writing Soviet economic and political history to trying to tackle and understand post-communist transition, the kind of arguments that Hayek gave and cautioned against constructivism, of course, are you know, really a big part of, of my own intellectual thinking. But Buchanan's effort at constitutional construction, if we can use that term in a, in a loose way, uh, so liberal constructivism, uh, maybe, as opposed to progressive constructivism. Basically, how can I improve the rules of the game so that the game itself can become more conducive? That was a big part of, of me appreciating and learning more and continuing to learn more from Buchanan. So to me, I think that this, you know, economics is kind of divided up into four core pillars, which is the first one, which is the truth of economics, which is embedded in scarcity and the trade-offs. The second one is the beauty of economics, just the beautiful reasoning of economics, the interconnectedness of the market, the beauty of spontaneous order. The third one is actual hope that through Kosian bargaining, through Buchanan constitutional construction, through Kersnerian and Schumpeterian entrepreneurship, we can have a better world. We, we become better. Progress is possible. And then the fourth one is compassion. That is that the, the, the lion's share of the progress goes to, in fact, those who were previously dispossessed. <laughs> they, they, they lacked power. They lacked, uh, you know, uh, voice. They lacked, uh, um, uh, you know, basically uh, they were blocked out of the system by privileges and power. And what liberalism is, then this ongoing struggle is that we accumulate liberties and these are constant battles throughout history. So the Magna Carta gets us one thing, right? And then, you know, uh, you know, other, you know, aspects of changes, religious toleration gets us another. And we keep picking and picking and picking and picking away. And this continues as long as we continue to recognize more people are part of the conversation. Equal things must be treated equally. And so therefore, we continue to grant dignified equality to more and more people for their for who they are and what they how they choose to live their lives and what that entails with respect to what it means to have a liber liberality in your attitude towards others and so to me this is the ongoing struggle so you know in my i i, I apologize for going on here but just to give you an imagery so i teach comparative economic systems and I use the imagery oftentimes of in 1989, juxtaposing the tank, you know, and the, and the person in Tiananmen Square, then with dancing on the Berlin Wall, you know, at the, at, in December of, uh, you know, November, December of that year, right? So what did we think in, in, you know, June and July? And what did we think in November and December of 1989 itself about what was possible, what was, you know, the freedom of the individual and, and the, the recognition of that. And I think that, that what happens if you recognize that point, 
you realize that then the post-communist period, 1990 to 2000, let's say, you know, was one full of tensions and difficulties and backtracking and, and having to restart and everything like that. And so when you start to realize that, you realize that this is a constant struggle. And, and you know, the, the, the title of the book comes derivative from, an, from a lecture that I gave in New Zealand. Um, you know, many years ago when Roger Kerr and the New Zealand Roundtable had me come down there, I toured the country and I gave this what's called, uh, you know, the, the Sir Ronald Trotter lecture. And, um, and what's fascinating about that is, you know, of course, New Zealand went, is one of the great economic miracles, right? Lowest in the, in the OECD countries to one of the richest in the OECD countries. But at the time that I was giving my talk, it was in a period where they were starting to backtrack. Right. So they, they had had this tremendous liberalization and tremendous growth, never completed, of course, but they, you know, they nevertheless they did. And then by this time, there's already disappointment and interest groups ossify, you know, ossifying the system and they're starting to go backwards in time. And it was like no one really wants to go back to what it was like when they were poor and you know, unable to do anything. But they but various different things. So you have to constantly be battling to make sure that the liberal project continues to go forward. And I think that's, that's a big, big aspect of what I'm trying to communicate in the various essays over the years here. Yeah. Right. And I, and on that exact note, I think that the book does that very well, like regardless of what angle or what subject each essay is talking about, uh, we'll get to a couple of specific points in a bit. Uh, it's, you know, there's always this, this theme or this thread pulled through the whole book, exactly as you said about the, the struggle and, and moving forward and being forward looking in the work that needs to be done. And, and which brings me to the specific question I want to ask, which is something I really liked. Right in the intro of the book, and I think this is timely because it's July 9th as we record this now, you talk about the 4th of July, Independence Day in the intro of your book, and also quote Frederick Douglass's words on it from over a century ago. And again, that's quite timely. Now, in some circles of folks who do pay less lip service to, you know, Western liberty, freedom, this day and this ideal seems to come with like a sense of triumph in some circles, you know, like it's the 4th of July, we're here, we were, you know, we're here, we've made it kind of thing. And, you know, you seem to want to remind people that too much of that kind of thing is sort of uncalled for. That's the sense like if we're serious about freedom, in other words, we need to recognize the many ways that it's still an unrealized ideal and there's still work to be done. And I really like that. One of the questions uh, that I try to, I, I, you know, it's after you get done putting a book together, you always have uh, regrets about what you didn't get to say, especially when you get an opportunity like this to go around and talk about it. Cause like, man, I should have said that or should have stressed this. And I think one of the, the, un, the, the, it's not explicit in the book, but it's actually in the book throughout is a disappointment among myself, uh, by myself of liberals uh, because I think liberalism and the her the intellectual heritage of liberalism uh, deserves in many ways better defenders of it today than we, than we have been, including myself. So I'm not I'm not indicting others and in, in not including myself. I think we're all among the guilty. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that what happened is after 1989, because of triumphalism, uh, too many people thought we had won the intellectual argument. And therefore, they thought it was all about politics. Right. And they devoted their lives to political aspirations. And if you think about politics, politics really is about minimum winning coalitions. How can I build a minimum winning coalition to be able to get my policy through? If you think about the world of ideas, 
you're just thinking about how it is that I can build a coherent uh, argument that is compelling to people that might not agree with me. How do I engage with them? So what you're doing is you're engaged in a cultural argument that rests control of the tacit presuppositions in political economy. In politics, you don't have time to worry about the tacit presuppositions. You're trying to win the day. And so as a result, you end up by standing next to people that are in fact uh, you know, odious uh, because they are useful partners for winning policy A or policy B or whatever. And next thing you know, you end up by being defined by those who are odious next to you. Now, what Frederick Douglass is trying to tell us is that, look, your hypocrisy that is associated with you celebrating the 4th of July and the liberty of mankind and the universal rights, you should, in fact, it should drive, as he says, you know, basically principled men mad because of the inconsistency. And so that really struck me. The other thing, since this is a, a lot of the audience is libertarians and they know all this, if you look at that essay, and you see who Douglas's influences were. It's Lysander Spooner. So yeah, you have to understand that abolitionism has a long libertarian, individualist, anarchist roots to it that libertarians should be celebrating rather than you know running away from in some sense. And and so it's not that uh, you know Douglas is reading you know Karl Marx or whatever, right? <laughs> you know he, he's influenced by Lysander Spooner and the idea, uh, and, 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 as well as you know obviously his own thinking and all of this. So to me, this is a great libertarian track. And again, building on Lavoy, if you look at Don Lavoy's book National Economic Planning, what is left in the chapter on the what is left when he tries to explain the true left, he explains that. The Jeffersonian project wasn't hollow, right, in the sense that it wasn't a project which could not achieve its, its, its wonderful goals. The problem was it was incomplete, right? It's an incomplete revolution as opposed to a, a, a thorough revolution. There are ideas, by the way, which are hollow. That is that even if we completely pursued them, they could not achieve the goals that we set for them. I would argue socialism is a hollow ideology. It, it, it promises one thing and it can't deliver on it, but it can't deliver on it, not because socialists didn't like pursue it consistently and persistently. It was because socialism itself is incompatible with the very goals that it's socialist means are incompatible with the very socialist goals that they're trying to achieve. Whereas liberalism I would contend, and of course, this is a this is part of the struggle, is that this is an argument that other people are going to debate and disagree with. But I would argue that liberal means can achieve liberal ends. The question is whether or not people are going to consistently pursue liberal means. And there's a variety of reasons why they might. Prejudice, but also vested interest. People benefit by not being liberal, you know, right? by getting power and privilege given to them. So we have to worry about protecting competition or promoting competition. What happens is most of the time when people talk about policies or whatever, the business interests are trying to be protected from competition, not promote competition. Well, that's crony capitalism. That's not laissez-faire capitalism, right? And laissez-faire capitalism never meant, you know, whatever the hell people want to do. 
right? Laissez-faire capitalism meant within a system of well-defined, strictly enforced property rights, freedom of contract, right? You would end up by having these kind of exchanges. It didn't mean perfect competition. It doesn't mean, you know, uh, a full and complete market. It means an ongoing discovery process within a private property, freedom of contract kind of system with relative prices that are constantly guiding us and, and profits that are luring us and losses that are disciplining us. And so anytime that we turn around and we have, we privatize profits, but socialize losses, you shouldn't be surprised that, you know, the system doesn't work so well. And so we, as, as classical liberals, libertarians, we need to be very attuned to the fact that the reality that we live in, in, in the U.S., in, in Canada, which is a hell of a lot better than living in China or, you know, uh, some of the, one of these other places. So I don't want to give the wrong impression, but we don't live in our world. We live in a, we live in a modern version of mercantilism. That's right. And Adam, Adam Smith and liberalism were born as a criticism of mercantilism. And so we need to remember that and focus our energies in the right direction. And I really like your point about like, and I don't know exactly how to put my thumb on this, but I will say maybe we'll just tie it to like high excess say on why he wasn't a conservative. Maybe that's a good starting point. But I think like when you tie, tied all those thoughts back to the idea of like, you know, you know, as, as we exited the Cold War era and the Berlin Wall fell and this, this sort of like this triumphant mentality. And we were first talking about Independence Day and so some people's minds being a triumph. But I think that actually ties nicely back to your saying at the end there, because I do find that we will be guilty as classical liberals or people that are su supposedly upholding the liberal tradition if we, if we do settle into some sort of, for lack of a better term, everyone listening, conservation or conservative mentality over the institutions we have today because they are, you know, relatively speaking, I guess compared to feudalism, let's say, liberal, yeah, yeah. relatively. So I, I think that, so here's a, here's an interesting thought experiment that I always like to promote. It, it It's just a teaching aid, so it might not be the, the best thing, but imagine your, yourself that you're a Martian and, you know, you're able to to come to the earth in various different times and then look at the situation around you, you know? So think about like a, a Seinfeld joke, right? And Jerry Seinfeld, one of his first jokes that he used to tell is if, if you were an alien and you came to the earth and you saw people walking their dogs around, you would think that the dogs were in charge because right. <laughs> people are walking after them picking up their poop, right? So, so imagine you're an alien, you come to the earth and you look around and, you, and, and everything like that. Can you like, can you sit there and say that if you were looking, if you were a gay man in 1950 and you're an alien, you come down here and you look and you say, well, life was better for them then rather than now. Right. It's not true. Right. If, if you're a minority, you know, in my lifetime, this is hard for me to realize. But like in my lifetime was the loving case in Virginia with interracial marriage. 1967, right? I was seven years old. I wasn't paying attention to any of that stuff, right? But it's in my lifetime. When I hear about it today, I think, oh, that must have been back in the old days. And then I'm realized, and I'm like, well, the old days are when I was still alive. That can't be true, right? So, you know, if you're a trans, a trans, you know, uh, 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 you know, trans woman, which day, which which period would you rather live in? So when I was in college, I actually met Renee Richards. A, a trans woman tennis player, and she was on a tennis tennis circuit. She was a revolutionary in some sense. She broke out onto the whole thing or whatever. So, but you know, imagine the struggle she faced versus struggle, say, a trans athlete today would face, right? And and so these are such a you know amazing you know times, and we're still missing. We're swinging and missing, 
And so the trans athlete thing is a perfect case in point. We're swinging and missing. And so how do we actually end up by, you know, getting to a world which recognizes people's rights, respect them as individuals, give voice to where they previously not had voice. And, and yet at the same time, you know, recognize that we live in a pluralistic society, that we're all going to have differences and, and disagreements. We're going to quarrel. And how is it that we find the institutions that allow us to be quarrelsome with one another, but yet not, you know, have those quarrels turn into mortal wounds in society? And, you know, currently right now, I think we have a lot of, you know, we, we have a lot of rhetoric which sharpen the edges of our social interactions rather than dull the edges. And, 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 and that is tied in with, you know, certain populist rhetoric and other kinds of things. And we need to get back again to a civility, but a civility that maybe an earlier age might have preached, but we need to do it so much better in the future so that we actually have a future conversation. We can't, we can't ever go backwards and nor would we really want to, we want to go forward and the forward is where all the, the good stuff lies if we can actually fix it right. So we believe in progress. I mean, again, the Enlightenment values are values of, of universal human rights, but also the belief in reason and evidence and the belief in, in progress. So the possibility of progress. And it's that possibility of progress through reason and evidence that I believe is at the core of improving liberalism and the liberal society going forward. Right. And I really like the point you brought up of populism and things that are happening now, because even if we look at like, you know, just for example, if we mean you think about a timeline right now from like, let's say towards the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall till now, and we just look at that pocket. If it's true, you know, I'm, and now we're speaking to those who have that who had that sense of triumph that we could rub our hands and say, OK, you know, the, fr the free, the quote unquote free market debate won. you know, we won that battle. Now it's just about politics. Well, you know, something happened between that you know cleaner consensus period of like let's say the 90s to like post 2008 and then in 2015 if we feel like we're dealing with new struggles you know back to our word here and, and there's things that are just sort of waking up out from under us as, as classical liberals saying well hold on wait a minute you know 2015 to 2020 has been a surprise that many have described and to your point it's like well maybe that's why we all count ourselves as part of the guilty and like well, well, well in other words if that's the case, then clearly we couldn't rub our, wash our hands off of everything after yeah, the yeah. Cold War, I mean, right? So for, for the listeners there, I mean, again, it's not like everyone has has been been bad on this. I mean, you had a, a very interesting podcast with Jacob Levy, uh, you know, many uh, about his work on pluralism and a pluralistic society and, and whatnot. Chandran Kukathos has thought about it. But in general, if you think about libertarian thinking, um, you know, who among uh, the uh, the array of very, you know, very smart economists, philosophers and political scientists have risen to the kind of intellectual creativity of Robert Nozick? Right. That, that's what you really need. And you would have thought that 1989 would have been an impetus for a whole like not Nozickian revival, because I don't mean like that it has to be along Nozick's lines. We would have had creative thinking about the difficulties having to do with this, as opposed to believing that we won. And so we don't have to be creative about foundational issues. We just have to be creative about how we get, you know, uh, uh, deregulation through 
or lower taxes. A, a, th- or, a thousand page of free trade agreements. We won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to me, I think that how do we live in a cosmopolitan world benefiting from, you know, because again, here's, here's an interesting puzzle, right? And this is a very Hayekian point, which is that the great society relies on our ability to cooperate and coordinate with people that have a great social distance from us. So not only physical distance, but great social distance. You know, think about Voltaire, the Jew, the Gentile, and the Muslim, right? But yet they're able to coordinate and cooperate with one another precisely because they're they're in the marketplace and commercial society. So we put all of our eggs in the efficiency basket for economics when we should have been also putting eggs in the basket for the civility aspect of economics, the do commerce thesis. Now, of course, Deirdre McCloskey has done that. So again, I'm not saying no one has done it. It's just that as a, as a movement as a whole, people might've been more attuned to these things. And so to me, I think the greater the social distance, the greater the opportunities for, ex- for benefits from exchange, but also the greater the social distance the more transaction costs it is for me to engage in that exchange. So what do I need to have? I need to have some kind of institutions which actually ameliorate those social tensions, lower the the costs associated with that interaction, and therefore experience more of it. All right. And that's what liberal cosmopolitanism is really all about. It's building those institutions. Well, what the hell? Like, you know, ever since 9-11, We've been doing the opposite. We run in the opposite direction. So, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book which deals with the reception of free to choose. I won't go into all of the details here, but what you what your le- listeners just need to do again is a thought experiment is imagine that you were a kid that was born that's entering college this September. What is the world that you've experienced? Okay, you're born. Not when communism was falling. Communism is, is ancient news for you. you. You have no idea what that is. It's like watching like a picture of Churchill or something. You, you know, it's to say you don't care. What you know is that 9-11 happened before you were born. But what you've known is that the United States has been in permanent war with the, with the, the, the Middle East ever since in Afghanistan and in, in, um, in Iraq. and that the allies have joined in with that as well. So they're, they're not out of it, right? So we're, we're in, a, we're in a, a permanent war economy. That permanent war economy then confronted a global financial crisis. In the process of the global financial crisis, it seems that the, the investment banks did well, right? And, and, and average Joe didn't do so well. So there's growing inequality. Uh, there's growing concerns among the, the new generation of whether or not they're going to be able to have the things their parents had. Okay, And then you get a global, uh, global pandemic. So like, in, and, and again, government is the solution in each of these three things. Government grows, right, because of the crisis. And so we can say that government fails because it grows and it grows because it fails. And it's this endless cycle. That's what a kid grows up with. Except all of the teachers, rather than teaching about economics, because the economics has now shifted to the policy world, they don't give a crap about, you know, the, 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 they, what they're taught is that, oh, all this is a consequence of capitalism. So war, financial crisis, 
and the inability to deal with a global public good is all due to capitalism. So capitalism is what's bad. There's an alternative. It's it's government like that. That's the tacit presupposition that an 18, 19, 20 year old has right now compared to the tacit presupposition that I had when I was an 18, 19, 20 year old that was being introduced to economics for the first time. But it's after I had experienced the as a child, you know, the, the issues having to do with the 60s and the Vietnam War and then Nixon and then Carter and the stagflation. So to me, when I was there, you know, people tell me government's the problem with the economy. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that makes sense. That, that seems perfectly fine. Now, you know, these kids, you know, they, and so how, so what I, I guess the message that I would want to get across is that we, we forgot that politics is downstream from culture. And because we seeded culture, we ended up by not being able to have be part of the intellectual conversation about the nature of the power and privileges that currently exist in the system, which prevent the system from delivering people from, you know, their, their, uh, their frustrations. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, that's an excellent place to take a break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, as always, including Sabine Elchidiak, Scott Scheel, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Pete Betke today. Pete, I think the first half was great. We, we talked about a lot just towards the end there. Um, you said a bunch of things that sort of reminded me of that part of the book, and I believe you said it was James Buchanan talking about the soul of, of liberalism and the liberal project. So I want to talk a bit about that. And then we also did talk about, you know, the liberal struggle ultimately being an, an unending and, and you kind of coined, not coined, but referred to it as sort of an emancipation project ultimately uh, at the beginning of your book too. So in everything we talk about the front, I wanted to jump back in by saying, is in, in reference to everything we were just talking about, if we have people turning around and talking to the traditional liberal and saying, well, capitalism is the problem. As you said, that's their frame of reference, right? Is is the liberals role then to turn around and, as you said, get into what are the traditional critiques of privilege and power and the problems with capitalism and say, for example, yes, I agree. X, Y and Z is a problem with what you're seeing, but you might be wrong at A, B and C rather than, for example, what I see a lot of liberals tend to do, rushing to just defend, quote, capitalism as a whole. If you see what I'm saying, I was a little rambly, but that's sort of my question. Ultimately, is the liberals role, in my opinion, at least and I want to hear your thoughts on it, should be to actually agree with some of the valid critiques and call back to the original liberal tradition as opposed to just saying, no, 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 no. Capitalism is great. Free trade agreements, et cetera. Uh, I mean. I mean, let me state the weaker case first, which is is along as the, the liberal line. So uh, Doug Irwin is one of the most uh, you know serious defenders of free trade around the world today. And he'll defend the trade agreements because his argument is is that compared to what otherwise would have occurred, those give us some free trade 
as opposed to what otherwise would have been the other one. And I think that's an empirical claim. And, you know, he has he has his evidence that he presents and, you know, his books are should be widely read and understood. I personally don't like that particular line of argument only because and, and maybe it's because I'm I'm too safely and const within the university, which has its own problems, you know. Um, uh, so I want to talk about the ideal. I don't want you know, I don't I, I there's a an old essay by W.H. Hutt that influenced me a lot when I was a kid. It's called Politically Impossible with a question mark. And in it, he said the economists should never worry about practical applications of their ideas, because by the time it gets to policy, the politicians are going to water it down. So what the economists should do is give them the, the truth unvarnished, you know, just always stress like what the whole truth is and nothing but the truth, because when it gets into policy, the brine of politics, it's always going to get distorted anyway. So if you try to distort it to begin with, to communicate to more audiences, then when it gets distorted again, it's like, you know, deformed beyond recognition. And yet it has the name. So it's called you know, market reforms, but it's like really market socialism in some sense. So um, anyway, so I uh, let me just start with the idea of, of why I stress the emancipation. I stress the emancipation aspect, aspects because I think that one way to read what Adam Smith is about is challenging the power and privilege of the mercantilist class. But it's also the case that if you study the history of liberalism, I was very influenced by Lionel Robbins's book on the, history, the, the theory of economic policy among classical British economists, because what he, what he tries to argue in there is for a co-evolution of the body of political economy thought and the body of liberal political thought. So his argument is if you follow it, what happens is, is that the economics and the, the argument for economic liberalism and the argument for political liberalism evolve together rather than separately. And so they're tied to one another. And that made a lot of sense to me because they put an emphasis on the institutional framework, but the institutional framework is one of property, contract, and consent. And so you had to have the argument about why we need a system of property, contract, and consent to be part of that. And that issue of property, contract, and consent is also overturning various different restrictions on our liberty, right? And, and this is what I meant before about liberties being hard won, and then they accumulate into liberty. And But that includes religious toleration rather than having the religious wars. That in, included constraining the crown, right? Put it so the crown doesn't have unlimited authority, but putting restrictions on the crown, parliamentary system, other kinds of things to put checks on authority to, uh, you know, beyond the feudal system, moving beyond the feudal system. I, I'm reading a really interesting book uh, by Emma Griffith. She's a social historian in England, and it's called Liberty's Dawn. And it's about the uh, life histories in the 19th century in England. And it's based on diaries, letters, memoirs, these kind of things. It's really fascinating, starting in 1810 and then carrying into 1890, how life improved for people. Now, it still was miserable, but it was so much better than it was to start with, right? And one of the things that's fascinating about it is the, the ability to move away from the apprenticeship system. So the apprenticeship system that was founded in the, in the 16th century, that actually tied people basically to these 
these, uh, you know, families would take their young kids and give them to these, you know, people pay for them to be trained by an apprentice with somebody. And then that person didn't earn money. They apprenticed for the person until they got to a point then they could become a master and whatnot. Well, what happened in the 19th century, one of the things was, is they, there was laws that were passed that eliminated the bonding of that person to the, the, the master, so the apprentice to the master. So now all of a sudden, apprentices could leave on their own. They had exit options, and that opened up all kinds of ways in which they experienced the labor market. To me, that's amazing, you know, aspect of things. Yeah. And so I want to see liberalism as, 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 you know, as seeing this aspect of the great escape, uh, you know, from, from the, 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 the violence trap of the Malthusian world to realizing the great expanse of the great society. And that's what liberalism is about, is each of those steps that move us in that way. Now, your other point, which I think is important, and again, it's a missed opportunity in the book, but let me state it here, is that I do think that we, we are lacking a serious adult conversation of three issues that I'm getting at in the book, but I don't say it quite like this, which is the first one is the fiscal gap that the Western democracies have, in fact, fallen prey to what Buchanan calls the fiscal commons. And it's too complicated to go into all this right now, but what you need to do is look up the theory of what's called intergenerational accounting and the notion of the fiscal gap. That is, how much do we, how much promises have been made that require fiscal obligations in the future? And what are the projected revenues that would be able to meet them? And then what's the gap between it? And so what's happened is that gap has gotten in the United States, for example, in in the trillions before COVID, right? 211 trillion before COVID, let alone after COVID, which is now like through the roof. How do you unwind that, right? You can't, right? That, that's a serious conversation. You know, how do, how do you get out of that situation? The other one is ever since the, uh, the global financial crisis, but actually to be honest with you, going all the way back to 9-11, what's happened is the Fed's balance sheet and what the Fed does has drastically changed. And that's true for the monetary systems in, the, in Europe. It's true for monetary systems around the world. They've violated their rule of law association of, uh, tied, to their, to their, um, you know, tied to their job as a central bank. So how do you have an adult conversation about getting the, the, the monetary responsibility back? So fiscal responsibility, monetary soundness. And third one is, is structural inequality. Now, a lot of liberals are going to like balk at that. But here's the reality. The same people who balk at that have just spent the last 20 years talking to you about the rent-seeking economy, that, uh, you know, all these regulations and restrictions and everything like that. Well, each one of those things creates structural inequalities because they don't allow for the free flow of labor in the, in the economy, right? Like, this is, and so we have to admit that, the, that you know, and, and these regulations and taxes and everything, they haven't fallen equally on everyone. Right. They fall. They fall disproportionately on some versus others. That's just the reality of politics. And so we can't be both defending the existing status quo and criticizing the existing status quo at the same time. So we should focus the fact and agree, as you said, with the criticism. You know, the current system is rigged in a way that it doesn't need to be rigged. Uh, 
and and it has benefited some at the expense of others. I mean, remember what the core principle of public choice is: is that you're the lot. It's the logic of of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. You concentrate the benefits on the well organized, well informed in the short run, and disperse the costs on the unorganized and ill informed in the long run. Well, who the hell are the well informed and well organized groups? versus who is the unorganized and ill-informed groups, okay? Well, we've already identified this, so why not take the public choice criticism and bring that to bear on the problems of the structural inequalities that exist in America, or for that matter, the discrepancies in criminal justice system, or any kind of other things that we look at and we say, oh my God. Even before public choice, I just want to continue your point and, and like re-emphasize that that, was, that goes right back to Smith, for instance, right? So we've identified these groups, as you said, right? Right. The sophistry of the businessmen, right? Adam Smith's book is a pro-market book, not a pro-business book. Right, right. <laughs> so this is the, the key thing. Libertarianism can't be businessmen who like to smoke dope. That's not, you know, that's not, that's not the rallying call. You don't go to the streets with that as your banner. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a systematic criticism of a system of power and privilege that is granted to some. And the problem is, is that a lot of progressives are literally feeding into the power and privilege, right? And our job is to be a gadfly and expose that. That's part of our job is to expose who these concentrated benefits go to, you know, where are those interest groups, things like that. And, you know, we can do that through a variety of things. Campaign contributions is one of them, but there's a variety of other things. And and I think as well, not not downplay those as like a I'm actually just ripping Levy off here, so I have to credit him, like a subsidy here and there, a football stadium tax break there, and actually talk about it as power and privilege and elevate that and not to over-exaggerate, like, you know, the state rent seeking, which is bad enough. It doesn't need exaggeration. These things need to be talked about in even sense back to people like the way Smith did. Yeah, so I'm going to go there, though I, I try to avoid going there because of all the connections in it. But I'm a kid from New Jersey. You know, from the time I was this high, I knew that Donald Trump was a shyster. Okay, and all he does is get special privileges and protections from various different political actors. He is a political capitalist, and that's what he's always been. Lee Iacocca was a political capitalist too, right? The, the head of Chrysler. So, right, he convinced everyone that was what was good for Chrysler is good for America. So, America should give Chrysler a whole bunch of benefits or whatever. Trump convinced cities and governors and mayors to give him all kinds of privileges as he built up his business and give him all kinds of passes when he did things. So when he came on the scene, you know, I was completely convinced, like, who the hell's ever going to be interested in this guy? Because, you know, he's just, he's been a shyster since day one. All you got to do is fly a helicopter over Atlantic City and say, there, there's evidence one, you know, evidence A, you know, we're not going to do this. So, you know, to me, you know, the idea that somehow he became like a champion of lower taxes and, and less regulation or whatever, it's like, wow, what the hell happened here? Mike, you know, because he didn't, right? If you look at it, you know, he didn't. And, and, and liberals kind of, our kind of liberals made mistakes, I think, in, in, in aligning. That goes back to they want, they cared more about owning the Democrats than they did care about actually the arguments for freedom. And, and, and that's a huge problem, but that's politics again. 
But if, if we if, if you think about other kinds of things, think about Zuckerberg at the hearings about regulating Facebook. All right. Now, why aren't people cynical whenever the guy from Twitter or, you know, or Dorsey or, or Zuckerberg raise their hand and say, yes, we need to be regulated and I'll join in the regulation, you know, and I'll be there. I'll be on the committee. You, you should be like laughing at them. Right. Because this is exactly the whole theory of the capture theory of regulation. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. And that's the thing that killed me when this whole thing happened, because a lot of people went just right to like the the talking about the state regulating things. cue cards. But I'm saying right here on, on C-SPAN or whatever, we have literally yeah. the the, uh, the 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 merchants and manufacturers, if you will, to talk the Smithian phrase with with the state and the government getting together to regulate trade reg- regardless of what, what what's good for us. No, it, 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 it's like amazing to me. And during just to give a fine point to this, you know, all the listeners should look up Carmen Segaria. Carmen Segaria was a very uh, uh, idealistic lawyer who went to work for the Fed as a regulator after the financial crisis. And she was going to track like the big investment banks that they wouldn't do anything. And she became a whistleblower because she found out that the Fed was rather than regulating Goldman Sachs, was in fact finding ways to give Goldman Sachs like a free opening, you know, to be able to do things. And she has it all recorded. And there's on 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 national public radio, you can listen to 10 hours of details of concentrating benefits and dispersing the cost. It's what my colleague, former colleague Russ Roberts used to say, gambling with other people's money, right? So, you know, the big investment banks are able to gamble with other people's money. You know, do I like the fact that, you know, there's high rates of return in the stock market at the moment and it increases, you know, the balance of my retirement account or whatever? Yeah, of course, I understand that, you know, but I'm not going to sit there and back away and think that this system is ideal. This system has all kinds of plague, uh, serious problems that plague it that we have to have an adult conversation with in order to actually make progress. Otherwise, and and this is my bigger point, otherwise we're going to actually lose the the ability to communicate with this generation that has been born of a militarized economy who has uh, evident, you know, structural blockages in it, you know, and, you know, now, is the U.S. economy or the Canadian economy better than the French economy? Yeah, of course. So this is the problem is that, you know, it's like, you know, if, if you and I were stuck in the woods and we had to get away from a bear, you can run faster than me. So you, you would look you would look like you're Usain Bolt or something like that. And I would be eating you know, dinner for the bear. Um, right. Re- relatively, I'm Hussein Bolt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Relative, <laughs> but, but, but the reality is, is that, you know, we could do so much better and we could have so much, you know, better economic and, and social relations if we just fessed up to the the uh, the illiberal nature of some of our institutions. Right, right. And I think um, like it- to, to me, like, I don't I don't know, like, do you feel like I, I, I don't want to like, you know, because you and I could speculate forever. And this is more of a freewheeling sort of thought process that what I'm about to ask. But, you know, because there's going to be multiple answers to it. But specifically in the classical traditional liberal circle, do, do you think 
that a lot of the sort of potentially downplaying or sidestepping the adult conversation that you've been talking about, about some of the structural problems or certain topics about inherent privilege in the business community, all the stuff we've been talking about, is that sort of like a, a bit of a, a, a cultural hangover, if you will? I didn't term that someone else today, I forget who, from that sort of um, Cold War period, that Reagan era, where, where you kind of did have that that fusionist, conservative, classical liberal alliance, uh, you know, number one. So number one, do you think that's kind of like a hangover from that period that some people are having trouble getting past? And number two, it sounds like you're saying that in order to make progress with our struggle for a better world in the liberal circles, we, we do need to run away from that sort of cultural hangover. I mean, this is a complicated question. So let me start with a professional point in economics and then broad to a broader society point. So I happen to be an Austrian economist, right? I, if, you, if you cut me in economics, I bleed Mises and Hayek and Menger and, and Kirzner and all the Austrians, okay? And, uh, and, and so that means that I find different allies in the economics profession that I want to have a conversation with. So methodologically, analytically, and then ideologically, okay? And so who do I find as alliances? So on methodological grounds, oftentimes the alliances are with other heterodox schools of economic thought, all right? And I've done a lot in my career with interacting with heterodox schools of thought. Um, analytically, it's usually more like uh, not heterodox people, but people that are trying to challenge and develop more dynamic approaches within mainstream economics. So like more like complexity theory and things like that. And then ideological, you know, you find allies that are libertarian type allies that are in the Chicago school and everything like that. So it depends on the different pockets of alliance that you find yourself in. But here's the one thing that I think could fix economics, which is a more pluralistic economics, an economics that respects various different schools of thought, perspectives, that when we teach our students, we teach them as if economics was a set of eyeglasses. And what you want to do is you want your students to be able to understand, well, what if I'm wearing a Keynesian set of eyeglasses? How would I look at the, the world? If I was wearing a Marxist set of eyeglasses, how would I look at the world? If I'm wearing a Necessian pair of glasses, that. And what you want to do is you want to have a contestation among all the different perspectives so that we get this. So here's the thing. If you're in different analytical groups, you're in different uh, you know, methodological groups, you're in different ideological groups, what's fascinating to follow is who they think they need to exclude. Who they think they need to exclude. Rather than arguing for pluralism, they make a new argument for a new hegemony. It's just a hegemony defined by them. So one of the things that's fascinating is that in the debate on methodology, the school of thought that gets eliminated, standard neoclassical economics, just gets weeded out. It's like, get those guys the hell out of here. You know, time's up for them. You know, we don't need them anymore, right? And that's wrong. That's not a true pluralistic economics. A, a true pluralistic economics would have mainstream economics vying with Austrian economics, with Keynesian economics, and whatnot. Okay, now let me translate that to society as a whole, because I think that one of our fundamental things that we have to recognize is that we don't have a stable social welfare function with a unity of purpose. We have competing welfare functions made up from all of us and our desires and dreams. And so we have a pluralistic society. And the question is, how do we actually organize when we cannot agree on ultimate ends? We can only agree on the means by which we interact with one another. So the way we define liberalism is procedural liberalism, meaning it's the way you and I interact. The way we define democracy is not necessarily just 
one person, one vote, majority rule. It's actually the way you and I interact democratically with one another. We're citizens. We're governing with each other. No one governing over us, right? And so this is a different way of relating. Well, what are the institutions that bring that about, right? That's going to be the question. So a conservative has just as much right to be in the conversation as a radical say lifestyle liberal, right? Uh, you know, sort of a, 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 let's just take a, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, sends uh, lewd and, 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 you know, uh, uh, sort of very, you know, lewd and prude, you know, right? So both lewd and prude belong in the, in the conversation. The question is what are the rules by which they interact with one another so that they can, you know, survive. And so to me, my personal attitudes about a lot of things are not what's at stake in this, but to a lot of conservatives, they think meaning is attributed to their personal attitudes having space within and winning politics, right? So they need to win. So here's the ultimate upshot of what I'm trying to say, which is bouncing around. Is I, I and I have a conversation about this in the concluding essay about civility, uh, in the discussion of civility. I think that we can have parochialism that is very strong beliefs my way or the highway belief at the localist of levels. But what we can't do is ever have that at the highest levels. At the highest levels, we must have liberality. That is a respect for the pluralistic values that exist. And therefore, all of our conversation at the highest level is about the way in which the different parochial belief systems can interact with each other. <coughs> but you could, this is like Nozick's third third section of anarchy, state, and utopia. Um, or to some extent, you know, what Jacob's writing about or what, uh, you know, what uh, uh, Chandran's writing about. Though Jacob and Ch Jacob uh, is very attuned to the oppression that could happen inside of the parochial groups, even voluntarily. So it's not just state oppression. Chandran is more willing to bite the bullet on that and allow as long as there's some kind of exit options, they're able to do that. I'm a little bit more on Chandran's side than on Jacob's side on that, because I don't really know how I would operationalize constraining the oppression that's done through private interactions, even if I don't like it. But I, the only way I could do it is through feet voting, you know, kind of thing, which is one of the conditions that Chandran has. I have to have the ability to exit. And then, you know, I could do all these things. But I also think there's social criticism which maybe is also what Jacob's getting at, which is that we can write criticisms of those ways of, of living as not desirable ways to live and then try to persuade people that they shouldn't do that and counter that. But the basic idea is that, you know, it, 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 I, I, was, I was at a wedding recently of two conservative Catholics and it was a beautiful wedding ceremony, right? I, I happened to not be, a conservative Catholic, but it was a beautiful wedding ceremony. I imagine if I went to a wedding ceremony of Orthodox Jews, I would feel the same way or of, of any other variety of religions. People have values that they place on those kind of relationships. They should have the space in a free society to pursue those things. What they don't have the ability to do is tell everyone else that they have to live that way. And that's also true of, of, uh, of the lewd. So the prude has to be respected by lewd, but 
Lou doesn't have the right to then, you know, shove, you know, pornography in the face of the of the prude. But the prude doesn't have the right to tell the lewd that they can't read Lady Chatterley's Lover, right? Or something like that. And so how do we figure all this out? This is this is also an ongoing struggle. This is part of the intellectual apparatus. It's not that those answers are have been answered definitively from Locke's essay on toleration, uh, you know, all the way up to, you know, arguments uh, today, right? They, they, it, we're, we're constantly thinking and rethinking these things. So that's what I want the conversation to be. You know, it's, it's not that, that David Hume recognizing property contract and consent is the end of a conversation. It's the beginning. Or Hayek telling us that Adam Smith sought to find a set of institutions in which bad men can do least harm. That needs to constantly be a puzzle that we think about not something so it's a, it, the the puzzle maybe has traction over time but the solutions have to come from each generation thinking about how they they do all that right right which is an embedded part of, of the truly classical liberal traditional liberal tradition is sort of the the acceptance that this stuff is is ongoing and dynamic it's not a one and done sort of thing we're 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 constantly struggling to figure that out yeah and compare that to the notion that and I don't mean any offense here, you know, so don't, but if you compare that to like the envisioned position of say a version of Randianism or a version of Rothbardianism with the non-aggression axiom, you know, if you think about Rothbard, what's going on there is he's asking the question of what's the right and wrong of compulsion of the state. And he wants to draw a bright red line and say, this activity doesn't belong in a free society. This activity fits into a free society. And then a lot of libertarians come along and they say, what's the most obnoxious position that I can hold close to that line? And then let me defend it. And if you're unwilling to let me do it, you must not be a libertarian, right? And to me, I think this is what I call litmus test libertarianism. I think this is a disaster way of thinking. Instead, to me, it's an ongoing conversation about how it is we come to respect the rights of other individuals and how, as as uh, the way Mill put it, what are acts that are president, uh, pre prejudicial to the actions of others, right? So, so there are actions which are prejudicial with respect to others, and what he means by that is externalities. <laughs> what 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 is the way in which we fence in and try to find our way? And to me, that's an evolving, constant struggle to figure out how it is we can live better together than we ever could live in isolation from one another. And I think that's actually, as our time winds down here, a good place to end off the, the main part of our chat here. But before we go to the formal wrap up, Pete, I just wanted to touch on one more note here. Um, I'll again remind those listening that this episode is being recorded in early July. When it comes out, it'll be some sometime later. Um, but but as of today, it is still fairly recent that we, we lost a friend of freedom and a friend to many of us, Steve Horowitz. Um, Pete, one of the people you dedicated this book to was actually Steve. So I, I wanted to get some of your thoughts and reflection on him. Why, why was he one of the people you dedicated the book to? Did you want to talk about some of the way he's he's influenced you? And of course, uh, for those listening, Pete has written about Steve since he passed and you can find his work, work online. But but I thought to talk a bit about him here today. It just seemed very, very fitting. Just some thoughts and reflections on Steve. So I should I should mention right up front that that uh, I get a little, um, I might get emotional. I, I don't want to get emotional here. Um, Steve was one of my dearest friends um, and uh, longest friends, uh, 36 years. And uh, we were partners, co-authors. 
we did a lot of uh, things together. We shared the same professor, Dave Perchico, Steve, and myself. Um, and I'm tr I've been trying to write a, a, a more formal piece about Steve for Liberty Fund that I was asked to write. And I haven't yet been able to get the words down because I'm too tied up with the emotions about it all. So um, I'll try to be, um, you know, as, as, as good as I can on this. So uh, Steve, um, the first thing I should say to the audience is that Steve faced his disease with amazing attitude. Uh, so he, he uh, developed a form of cancer, which I had never heard of actually before he told me that he was diagnosed with it. And, uh, and the treatment options of it are continually getting better, but they're still not there. And Steve had some very bad fortune with the treatment options. And so he became kind of an experimental patient fairly early on. But even as late as June 24th, which is basically two days before he passed away, he died early morning of the 27th. Um, I was, uh, you know, uh, exchanging, uh, you know, messages with him and he was optimistic to the end. Um, so he, he really faced his uh, situation um, with utmost courage and optimism. And that really defines who he is, actually. It's, a, it's amazing when you think about it. So Steve and I have the same roots. We went in different directions. He taught in liberal arts college for years and also uh, was a, uh, a public intellectual in a way that I've never been uh, a public intellectual. I taught in PhD programs. I trained PhD students. I try to work within the economics profession to try to get a hearing for the kind of ideas. Um, Steve, talked to a broader audience. Um, he was on TV a lot. He wrote uh, very eloquently and, and, and spoke. I, I really recommend all your readers, maybe you can put a link up to it, to not just his interview when he won the Simon Award, but actual the piece that he wrote, um, because it's all about the, the, the possibilities of progress and the promise of progress. He really is uh, uh, amazing. But uh, he, was a, he was a great teacher and a great communicator, and uh, he will be very, very sorely missed. And one of the things that is relevant to the conversation today is that Steve recognized that liberals are liberal. <laughs> liberalism is liberal. Uh, liberalism is not conservative. Uh, liberalism is, 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 has a liberality in its uh, attitudes towards others. It has a compassion for those who are currently left out of the system. And it sees the great fact of human history as one in which liberalism is not only grounded in the idea. So Steve loved to use this, this example, which we all did, which is that uh, when you leave an exchange, you both say thank you. Right. So, you, you know, if you, if you go buy a carton of milk, you pay your money that you say, thank you. Thank you. Right. And you go, you know, it's, it's a it's, and, and this and this is the the idea. And, and, and so if you if you look at Hayek, talk about this catalactics, it's uh, the the hieroglyphics or whatever, whatever the figures were. I can't I, I probably said that wrong, but the the the, uh, the figures that make up the letters 
it's actually the original origin of it is two people shaking their hand to seal a deal. Okay. So that's like the K is the, right. Is the shaking of the hands. And so that's one aspect of liberalism, which is this mutuality, mutually beneficial exchange or whatever. But the other thing about liberalism, which we must remember is that through this exchange and the power of exchange and the ideas, I, I don't want to underemphasize this. This is McCloskey's point, the power of the ideas, which legitimate that exchange behavior. Right, that give that allow us to give it a go. It's the ideas, as Deirdre likes to stress. What that generates is also this tremendous cornucopia of of human, you know, betterment, right? And this tremendous great fact, the great hockey stick. And what that does is it actually offers not only a hand across to shake hands and welcome a stranger into friendship. We're strangers nowhere in this world, which is the liberal cosmopolitan dream. But it also represents, and, and I don't mean it in, a, in, a, in any kind of demeaning sense, but it, it, it is a hand up. The whole process of economic development takes the least advantage and lifts them up. So in 2015, because of the expansion of trade, this, this is one of the things that's weird about like what we were talking about earlier. So relatively speaking, we are more global than we've ever been. Right. And the, and the consequence of that is for the first time in human history, less than 10 percent of the world's population was living on less than two dollars a day. Right. If you just go back to 1980, we're talking about, you know, huge numbers of people that were lingering in extreme poverty. And so trade and, and the mobility of labor and capital throughout the world has improved the lives of people so much. COVID, by the way, has reversed that trend. Not not hugely, but we're above 10% again. And so it flipped back up. And, and, and that's, you know, horrific. Uh, and Steve was one who understood this balance. He celebrated the Simon. That's why he won the Simon Award. He celebrated the possibility of human progress, the a reality of the ultimate resource being the wealth creating, the value creating activity of individuals. Again, Steve liked to constantly stress we're not talking about piling stuff up. We're not, right? It's not about piling stuff up. It's about creating value, creating value. And, and that means you're creating wealth. And what that wealth creation, the way Simon puts it is, human beings make more than they take. So we, we make more value than we take value away. And as long as we're making more value than we're taking away, tomorrow is going to be better than today. And so Steve really believed that tomorrow was going to always be better than today. And he believed it about economics. He believed it about culture. He believed it about medicine and everything else. And so, you know, even, even as he was sick and, and fighting with this and, you know, uh, his family was so heroic. I mean, Sarah uh, is just a, 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 an amazing uh, partner for Steve. And I feel so horrible uh, that you know, that, that, that partnership got cut short. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I, my feelings are all out for her to, to, to wish her the best and her daughter's the best and Steve's children, uh, from his, from his first marriage as, as well as his, his first wife, Jody, who I was in their wedding. And, you know, I, I, you know, I can't imagine, you know, the, the, the suffering that all of these people are going through to have someone so young and so promising taken away from them. And, um, but Steve, even in the end, he, he, even when he was sick, he still had so much progress. Talking to him about his disease was like being in a seminar about science. 
he was just so curious. He was so curious about how they were inventing medical innovations and just whether or not he would be around long enough to benefit from all these medical innovations. And so it's, um, you know, he's, uh, it's just, it's, 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 it's really, I, I knew he was sick and I knew it was bad, but I never thought that he wouldn't beat it. And so even on that day, you know, when his brother sent me a text on the, on the 26th telling me that Steve was in trouble, it, it was hard for me to process and, and believe it, you know? And, uh, and so I, I don't really know what my, my partnership and my, my efforts are going to be like without Steve in the world. Um, and so I think that instead people like Dave and I and Emily Chamley, Wright, what we need to do in Virgil's store is we need to like double and triple down and, and try to, you know, live right by what Steve was doing intellectually. And, you know, we're eggheads. So, you know, there's emotional things associated with the person and all of that, but then there's also ideas. And this is the way like I process Steve and I and Dave and others process the loss of our teacher, Don Lavoie, who also unfortunately died from cancer at a young age. And we all in our own ways decided that, you know, ways in which we we're gonna try to advance what Lavoie was trying to get across. And we did it in our own way, you know, as best as we could. And I think now that's kind of the reaffirmation that we need to do with Steve. And just along that lines for your listeners who are into Steve's economics. So Steve did a lot of different things, but in economics, one of his big projects was in macro and money. And he wrote a book on micro foundations of macroeconomics. And the Review of Austrian Economics had a symposium with a lot of young scholars associated with macroeconomics, students of Larry White's and George Selgin's and, and whatnot, reassessing Steve's work. And uh, Springer is going to make it, that's the publisher, is going to make it open access for the month of, of July. And, and what I can do is once I know those, those, uh, that website, I can send it to you and you can maybe provide a link. Uh, for people, but but they it, it has a concluding essay by Steve where he's trying to uh, you know uh, assess how people are assessing his work and stuff, and I think that 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 um, you know that piece of scholarship of Steve's, which is one of many, uh, is just brilliant and should be really appreciated. It's a modern classic in Austrian economics, and I think it should be recognized and remembered as such. Um, it's it. it it develops the theory of what's called monetary disequilibrium theory and uh, just, just a brilliant work. And Steve was a brilliant man. He was a wonderful teacher and he was uh, just a, a great friend and uh, going to miss him very much. Thanks for that, Pete. And I'll, and I'll just, it's, it's, we're going to move ahead to our formal wrap up here, but I'll just echo everything Pete said. For those listening, I might not know, you know, uh, Steve was, was also a great friend of the Institute for Liberal Studies and everyone at it. And, and we're, we're going to miss him dearly as well. So thank you for that, Pete. And, and let's, let's step into our, our, our formal wrap up here with, with our, our entire conversation today. And of course, the memories of Steve and the kinds of things we think he might say about everything we said today. So let me ask you to wrap everything up, Pete. And to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our explanation of the question, what do you ultimately hope are, are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether a better world is possible and, and the liberal struggle in general? If, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us with just one or two or a few takeaways, what would those ultimately be that you want them to grab? Well, I think the first thing is, is I'm hoping that 
in my work, I uh, excite the minds of young scholars to be curious. So there is a curious task of economics, <laughs> right? But that curious task is also motivated by a fundamental curiosity, right? Which is, is uh, basically uh, looking out the window and seeing how social order emerges without central command. And so the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. But that's driven by our curiosity in the first place of how is it that Paris got fed? Right. There was no commands or whatever, but we have that. That's, you know. And so I hope first and foremost that I get young people that are interested in political economy and social philosophy to be curious about the machinery of freedom. Right. That is that if they're committed to the liberal order, the liberal order has to be both justified through a set of intellectual arguments and institutionalized through a set of institutional changes that protect it and promote it, the liberal order, and, and allow it to evolve. And so there's curiosity about a set of institutions that are both uh, coherent enough to serve as a guide over time, but flexible enough to adjust and adapt to the changing circumstances of the time. And can we find those sets of institutions which allow us to live better together than we ever could apart. And the final thing on this, um, if I could summarize what I'm trying to argue, is that the liberal order is one that allows ordinary people to do extraordinary things if they are given the freedom to act. Whereas the alternative position, so liberty, ordinary people can do extraordinary things if just given freedom. The alternative power, okay, is that extraordinary people can do extraordinary things if they're just given the power to act. And I think the battle is literally between those two juxtapositions. Freedom of the individual to find out the space, to innovate, to find ways to interact with others, and right and 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 cooperate and compete and all of that versus the idea that I need to have extraordinary, well-trained individuals that can govern over us and lead us to you know the good situation because we can't do it ourselves. So we need to have overlords. No overlord, overlord. And I know that that's simplistic in some sense, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be simplistic because it's constantly evolving how we actually operationalize that. And, and what arguments resonate for our time. And so, you know, there's a quote in the book. So by Hayek, that quotes the beginning of the Constitution of Liberty, where he says that old principles, you know, need to actually be rethought and restated with each generation, because otherwise they become stale and dull. And my argument is our lack of curiosity made these wonderful ideas stale and dull in the ears of these young people. And we need to be out there again thinking hard, working hard to make sure that our ideas resonate with the young people so they understand that the alternatives are not, you know, uh, to look in the, in the direction of power, but instead to look in the direction of liberty and creativity. And so that's what I hope people get. And I hope that the, the 20 years of lectures that are embedded in here 
provide a coherent message related to that, and it's compelling on some margins and leads people to write criticisms and, and corrections and all kinds of other things to my you know, ham-fisted way of trying to think about these things. So I don't think I have any definitive things, but I hope that I can inspire someone to want to write essays themselves along similar lines. That's excellent. I think we'll leave it there. Pete Betke, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>